This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former professional footballer and current University of Bath head coach, Jay Wilson. The former Norwich City, Bristol Rovers and Southend defender discusses his experiences in football as well as his coaching philosophies. I hope you enjoy. Cool. Jay, how are things? Yeah, good, thank you. A bit of a relief after yesterday's lockdown in Swansea, but um, yeah, things are good. Things are yeah. good, so uh, I've been positive for the cup run here at uni. Yeah, and so um, for you guys, you know who your opponents and stuff will be? Uh, I had a look yesterday, I'm pretty sure it's Durham, so we've got to go to Durham away, which hasn't been a great stomping ground since I've been here. <laughs> we've, been here we've been to Durham twice, three times, and we've never beaten them. Okay. Um, but... I certainly think we're in a much better place now to go up there and get a result. So uh, we'll prepare. It's not for another two weeks, so we'll prepare right and do all we can um, and see what happens up there. And how have you found, obviously, we're just after Christmas, if you like, and everyone's kind of, I'd imagine, coming back in a little bit of drips and drabs, uh, Christmas break, and obviously when people have got exams and stuff, how have you found that? It's, it's been a bit... Uh, a bit of a struggle at times, like you say, with, with uh, inter-semester break and exams has got in the way. Um, but it's the same every year, so you sort of, you do get used to it. Um, again, the lads, the hardcore group have been great. Uh, trained really well. Fitness was reasonable coming back after Christmas, which is always a plus point because you don't have to run uh, any physical, real physical stuff on the training pitch. So that was a good plus point. But you know, we have to make exceptions. There's there's individuals who have got four or five exams over a two week period, and in between that period of exams, they've got revision. So we understand that that's that's the nature of the institution and they need to do what they need to do so it's not ideal preparation for the final league game but you know we deal with it, deal with it. and how have you found obviously you've been in the role what two two and a half years now oh no it's just five years it's five years five year oh, okay. anniversary yeah okay <laughs> time goes time, quick time flies doesn't it? So, so how how when you very first came in did you find all that kind of those new challenges in terms of um, it, being honest, a lot of it was, it was a huge learning curve for me when I first came in, just the nature of the institution, the way things are done, uh, the process behind the scenes. And even now, I'll be honest, I'm still learning, because it's such a big role, I'm still learning bits and pieces of how the process is, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's been a challenge. Uh, luckily, there's individuals within the building and that I work with on a, on a regular basis that have helped me and guide and uh, are very informative so and very open. Um, and I'm quite self-aware in the fact that if I have issues and if I have something that I need to speak to someone about, I'll, I'll go and seek out answers. So, uh, and I think that's going to be the nature of it for however long I'm in the role for. So, um, you know, I'm going to be learning all the time. This place is evolving, um, hopefully for the better, and um, we'll see where it takes us. So, I guess the the easiest question to ask is kind of how and why did you get into football in the first place? What was um, coaching or, or playing. playing so playing when okay. younger I think it was just it's just one of thing, those things I had a, a love for the game from a very young age uh, the game is obviously very very different from what it is now uh, my dad was a, a huge football fan it's probably a, a little bit of that he was a, a good player he always tells me he was a better player than I was <laughs> um, and he, he um, I think he had a uh, to cut long so short he was with Chelsea when he was younger uh, had some really bad injuries and 
decided to stop playing football to come pursue a career and he became an accountant and I think from that day on he regretted it for the rest of his life yeah. uh, and, and pretty much said to me you know if you've got an opportunity to play football don't turn it down so um, I loved it I fell in love with the game I was reasonably good at it um, had a, uh, a good family support system behind me um, but that, that was the same with lots of other sports you know like we've, we've just been talking uh, I was a massive fan of rugby and being honest my, my family always tell me I'm a, I was a better rugby player than I was a footballer yes. but rugby was a different sport then amateur game um, played basketball played cricket played badminton judo um, so football was always the first love I guess um, and it just progressed from there really so what age did you start to specialise in football if you like Oh, good question. Uh, and drop everything else? Yeah. I mean, I still played rugby up until I left school. I still played cricket until I left school. Basketball, so 16. Uh, yeah. I was offered an apprenticeship at Norwich when I was 16. Um, uh, and moved to, to Norwich to, to take part in that for two years. And, and everything else had to be put on the a, on a back burner, really. Yeah. So, um, you know... It was, I, I was linked with Norwich since I was a kid, sort of nine, ten years of age. In them days, you weren't allowed to be signed for a professional club until you were 14. So um, I was a, an associate schoolboy, as it was then, signed at 14. Went through the three years of 14, 15, 16 as an associate schoolboy. So I, I knew from an early age I was reasonably good. Um, and that was a possible pathway for me. So although I was playing all these other sports, um, football was the sort of standout one that I suppose at that age I thought this possibly could turn into a career if I progress and I stick to it and I'm good enough. Yeah. So <laughs> it just went from there really. So in terms of like your your growing up and stuff, you've played lots of different sports. Mm. If you were at home or something had a night off, would you, would you go out and play football with friends or would it be you didn't really have a night off because you were doing so much other stuff? Um, most of the time if there was Space, free time it was it was football and I mean it was out in the streets then you know a couple of jumpers in, in the middle of the road basically yeah. and if a car came along it was car move all the jumpers off get out of the way and then car goes past then you put them back and play, continue to play yeah that's how it was when I was I was younger um, probably didn't play any other real sports socially just with friends it was all in organized uh, formats uh, played a lot of like I said rugby was my, my second love um, but rugby wasn't a sport you could sort of play in the street you know, <laughs> yeah. with your friends so it was just the nature of the game yeah. everybody identified with football you know I had friends that pretty much all of my school friends were football fans wanted to play football yeah. not all of them wanted to play rugby not all of them wanted to play basketball so um, it was it was just that was just the way it was and I remember supposedly going to school to revise my GCSEs and you know one of the friends would always take a football I'd probably take a football and Instead of being in the library, it was kicking a football about on the grass. So yeah. that was just the way it was. And in terms of games that you used to play mm. when you were growing up, what obviously you've mentioned there is probably playing games like jumpers for goalposts and mm. that type of stuff. Was yeah. there any other t particular type of games that you play, or was it mainly that football related? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I think I played my first real football match when I was about ten years of age. Okay, and believe it or not, it was an eleven-a-side okay. game yeah. on a full-size pitch. <laughs> Obviously, you look at it now and you think, how ridiculous yeah. is that? But that was the, the way it was and yeah. nobody knew any better. And 
luckily things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember, well, I don't remember it very well, but I probably kicked the ball about two or three times in however long we played for. Yeah. Um, so the organised football, I started off playing for my village side yeah. in Cambridge at 10 years of age. Luckily we were quite successful. Um, forged some really good relationships with friends there. Coaches and management were good. Um, and played for them really until I was applying uh, a good four or five years yeah. um, in a sort of local football leagues. And luckily when I was playing for, for my village Girton back in Cambridge, I was selected to play for Cambridge and District Colts, the regional side. Then from there I was selected to play for East Anglia Boys. This happened quite early, so this was probably about 10 or 11 years of age. I was selected for East Anglia Boys. That opened up opportunities to play abroad in football tournaments, etc. Um, and then from there, Norwich knocked on the door and just said, you know, come along and, and go from there. So, um, so a lot of games with friends and all that type of stuff. Yeah. And what about yeah, like yeah. street games and stuff? Was it mainly games or was it like examples of people playing Kirby and stuff like that? Did you ever play other things or was it literally yeah. we just play matches good most question. of the time? Uh, good question. I mean, the majority of the time it was probably just a, a casual kickabout. Yeah. You know, we go down the park, a goal, one football, uh, Wembley singles or whatever you want to call it nowadays. Yeah. And a bit like that. I mean, we, 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 I'm sure we would play other games, but uh, my memory sort of uh, is fading a little bit <laughs> with regards to that. But um, most of it was game related, yeah. yeah. So a discussion that I've kind of had before with Jake in one of these other recordings was mm-hmm. he mentioned how similar to you we would play a lot of singly at uh, Wembley singles Wembley doubles maybe headers and volleys stuff like that um, and then games yeah. whereas now when you look at kids a lot of them are doing ball mastery yeah. type practices and stuff yeah. um, what are your thoughts on kind of that transition away from those type of games to um, my thoughts um, I mean I like Ball mastery and, and that sort of thing was non-existent, obviously, when I was growing up, um, which I think is great in, in many ways because you have to become a master of the football to be a, a good footballer. Um, but that necessarily, I, th- I think it can take away the competitive edge of playing football in the street in a little game, yeah. uh, that competitiveness. Um, and I can see it a little bit now. We're, we're, we're losing a little bit of an edge, you know, that streetwise edge. Whether that's related to what the kids are doing now, I don't know. But um, I mean, if I if I think back to my first football match on a eleven side pitch and kicking the ball two or three times over the course of a game, yeah. I can only be good with the kids with you know with a ball each, dribbling, toe taps, etc., drag backs. Yeah, uh, I can it can only be a good thing if it's, it's blended balance. together it's the balance of the two really so it's really interesting I was speaking to a few people in some course I've been in and they were talking about the culture around London in terms of like goal sites and stuff like that okay. so I wasn't overly aware of this but right. they were mentioning that on a Friday night even though they possibly shouldn't be doing this right. you can go down to a local goal centre right, okay. um, and you'll have a lad from Chelsea Tottenham Arsenal okay. West Ham and they'll okay. play like pick up games right, okay. Um, so if it might be five aside, if you're there late, you don't play, oh, okay. and probably like a couple of age groups above, couple of age groups below, and they'll just play five yeah, sides and yeah. stuff. Which when I first heard about it, I was like, 
must physio departments must be having kids because yeah. <laughs> they're coming back in on a Saturday yeah, going what happened yeah. well you know the kid we're playing tomorrow <laughs> he's actually smashed me into a board or something but I actually think in terms of learning experience for kids it's probably a real positive because they get loads of the ball mastery stuff which yeah. obviously at younger ages in particular is really important yeah. but also they get the learning side of playing against different kids who are good yeah yeah and maybe older or younger and yeah. working out how to adapt their game accordingly yeah, yeah it's an obviously a challenging environment and they have to like you said they have to adapt their game and, and come up with the and come up with the solutions to the challenges put in front of them um, the competitive edge like I mentioned earlier I think in that environment they have to look after themselves yeah um, football's quite a ruthless game when you you know particularly when you get into men's football uh, it's okay being able to pass the ball 20 yards, 30 yards to feet, but there is a competitive edge and there's an opponent going to try and stop you. Uh, I've been honest, part of my game as a, uh, when I became professional was tackling. Mm. It was one of my strong points and I'm not saying I've made a career out of it, but it was certainly a plus point and, uh, and stood me in good stead. And I think things like that, uh, not, not getting eradicated, but certainly not what they used to be. And I know the game's evolving and it's changing from day to day. But how much match are there? And the, the, the pundits are saying, yeah, that's definitely a foul. And I, I'll be honest, I look at it and go, he's hardly touched him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the interpretation to, to what it is now. So, And I'm, I'm sure my dad, when he refers back to Norman Hunter and Billy Brown, <laughs> goes, yeah, they weren't any shrinking violets. So um, I think, like you say, the kids playing that streetwise, uh, just free play. Just free play, but they have that challenge of an opponent trying to beat them. Good talent, but they've got that background, that ball mastery behind them. If they can, if they can cope with the demands of that, then it stands in a good stead. Definitely. Do you think there's a way to develop that mindset of not so much looking after yourself, but that competitiveness? So obviously, you're working like older age groups now. Do you think there's a way of maybe getting a hold of a 14, 15 year old going? Actually, this is a really important part of the game that you struggle with. We need to develop that. Um, how you develop it I'll be honest I, I wouldn't know how to develop that it's, it's something that it's very difficult to coach it's almost a, an intrinsic motivation to a will to win a will to, you know people will always you know, go on about Rooney Wayne Rooney and he grew up playing on the streets of Liverpool and that's where he gets his competitive edge and if you took that away from him he wouldn't be the same player so I think social backgrounds have a massive, massive influence on future development. And I mean, we live in Bath. They're very different from those streetwise London kids you're talking about. Some of the streetwise Bristol kids you're talking about. Cardiff kids that, are, you know, have that little mean street, that little bit of nastiness that you need to become an elite footballer. Mm. So I think it's a huge, huge part of it. How you develop it. I wish I could tell you the answers to that. Yeah. So obviously you've mentioned that um, as a kid got got into the uh, Norwich in terms of scholarship at sixteen. How was that scholarship experience for you when you went in there? It was amazing. I mean, I was quite I was reasonably good at school. Um, there was a fear there, obviously, of doing two years as it was an apprenticeship, as it was then. You know, I was still cleaning boots and cleaning toilets and sweeping changing rooms. I still had that. Yeah, so. <laughs> so you know, making cups of tea for the professionals in the morning, yeah. and if they wanted something, you went and did it for them. Um, 
obviously very apprehensive and I mean I, I did have thoughts of staying on at school and doing A-levels um, but realistically I couldn't turn the opportunity down and I didn't want to so um, it was a big learning curve two years at Norwich it's a massive massive um, change of lifestyle I mean I moved like I say when I was 16 and I was living in digs and I remember crying my eyes out for the first two weeks as an apprentice you know, it'd been the first time I'd been away from school uh, sorry, from, from my parents um, for any long period of time. and um, But after a couple of weeks, it was fine. It was like, you know, you've been there for a long, long time. It takes a little bit of getting used to it. And there is a, a certain amount of pressure when you're doing it. But it, it, it made me grow. made me grow. I mean, I was quite, I'm still probably quite reserved. Some people say I'm quite, quite reserved. But... Um, I had to sort of come out of my shell a little bit when I was there and start to communicate and, and you know, get the best out of myself because it was an opportunity. And luckily, after a little while, I thought, I'm doing okay. It, it might have been different if I was struggling and thought, well, I'm never going to make a pro footballer. But my two years as an apprentice, I, I did reasonably well and I was quietly hopeful for a pro contract. And luckily, it came about. So, but it was a, it was a massive learning curve. And you see, you see, Football's a ruthless game. You can see lads come in and out left, right, and centre. And um, luckily, Norwich had a good, good background in development players. I think they did it in like what I perceived as the right way. Um, and we had a good blend of people. Um, we had lads from Norfolk. We had lads from London. We had lads from Cardiff. Uh, and Craig Bellamy was a prime example. He was an apprentice with us. So, um, and we had lads that. Uh, you know, had come into the program quite late, so just you know, almost been recognised at 15, 16 and signed as an apprentice. But then there'd been lads that had been involved with the with Norwich Tilt since they were ten. So, and and we all had different ideas of what we were to do. We we're all different people, uh, and I had to quickly grow up and realise that these lads, you know, lots of them are very different from me. They've got very different social backgrounds than me. But so I had to learn to look after myself a little bit and. In that ruthless world of professional football, you know you've got the first team sitting in the change rooms that you look after, looking after, and you want to be there. Um, and it's a, it is character building. <laughs> it is character building, and some of the things that happened then probably shouldn't have happened yeah. <laughs> in a real world. Yeah. It certainly wouldn't happen nowadays. Yeah. Um, luckily, nothing you know outrageous happened, but uh, you know there's there's things that I wouldn't want to revisit, <laughs> but. Yeah. I loved it. It was it was great. It was a great experience and, and a great place and great people, great club. So yeah, yeah. So, so you earlier when you alluded to kind of having a support network, quite mm. good with your family and mm. stuff. Obviously you mentioned you struggled during the first couple of weeks just mm. being away from home, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Was there ever points where you had a conversation with your dad when your dad was like, Remember what the aim is or was it supportive in that or was he just kinda of like you're 16 get on with it type of, type of deal because you do hear those stories where sometimes parents just go is what it is you've got to yeah I'd be lying if I can recall specific conversations but I remember um, I was quite fortunate in the fact that I could go home at weekends you know, Norwich being only an hour and a half from Cambridge uh, I'd just jump on a train and go home and see the family etc yeah. it wasn't difficult but I think it was just I think it was my dad was more, are oh, you be all right? Yeah. You'll be all right. Um, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat things. 
but he was, um, I think he knew that just give it time, just give it time, you'll be fine. Uh, and he was right, you know, after a couple of weeks, I was fine. I probably, being honest, I probably didn't raise it that much with them anyway. I don't think I told them that, you know, I've grown my eyes out. And I work, that's just the relationship I had with my family. It was probably something that I've hidden, I hid at the time um, to a large extent. And it's probably what I do now as well. <laughs> you know, so is that from just then or others, or is it? Would you? Is that anyone that you would have spoken to around that time? To um, no, I think that's just the my. I don't think I'd have spoken to anybody if I had any issues like that. I don't think there was anybody I could really go to and just say, "I'm struggling with this." Um, you know, we talk about support networks now and. That wasn't available then, I don't think. Mm. Um, with it out of your own family circle, um, but I probably, I probably just dealt with it myself in my own specific way. I didn't really raise it too much because I probably deep down knew that it was going to be okay. It just took me time. Yeah, um, just try know. and dig in a little bit and yeah, get through that. It, exactly, exactly, and um, and you do get there in the end. You just got to dig in and keep working hard and go from there so so yeah. obviously you you spoke about kind of the culture thing around Norwich and that was quite positive and mm. obviously you mentioned that different cultures coming in mm. with someone like Craig Benamy for example mm. who you see at the top end you see uber competitive and stuff like that how was the merging of all those different uh, cultures and personnels and stuff in terms I get I guess the question I'm asking is was there any points where as a team you found that difficult or was it because you all knew where you wanted to go as individual as players you kind of bought into what was being sold by managers and stuff like that I think we all I think we all knew where we wanted to go and I think we all pretty much got along most of us there was obviously some lads that disliked others more than they <laughs> Than, than liked others so but we have no real issues no real even though we were from completely different social backgrounds some of us you know we all seem to get along and we had this same um, goal that, that end product that we were, we were striving for obviously behind the scenes when you're away from the away from the training pitch and away from the training ground there's little bits and pieces that go on um, between individuals but that's young men yeah. young men but it uh, you know, ninety-five percent of the time, I'd say everyone was amicable, got on, and just got as a group. We were in it together, and we were trying to help each other out and strive for the same thing. So I can't remember too many issues. To be Do you see that translate to like modern-day young men in terms of their experiences? Obviously, you've worked in colleges and universities and stuff. Now, do you see a translation between the two, or do you see any differences between the two settings? Yeah. From my experiences, I've never really seen any difference. I think they're, they're put in, a, in, a, in a, an environment where they're together and they usually cope with it really quite well. Obviously, on a bigger scale, it might be different, but the, the groups that I've worked with, particularly here at the university, when I was coaching at Cambridge University, the majority of them just got on with it. They knew what they, they were here for. I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what goes on behind the scenes when they're away from me. No away from me away, you know, so yeah. I can't comment on that, but I, I like to think they all get on with it, stick together and have those same goals. So, But, but again, they've got very different backgrounds. I mean, I've got some lads who have been apprenticeship, uh, apprentices or scholars at professional clubs 
Um, so you know, been brought up in a, a really professional environment and had that uh, overlooking them for the last few years. And I've had, had lads that have come through college programs who have never been attached to a pro club, don't know that environment. Merging them is can be difficult, but in the main, they cope with it quite well. I think it's good um, just because you hear a lot nowadays how like social media and phones and technology mm-hmm. kind of takes away from people's social skills. So it's yeah. positive, the yeah. fact that you're saying that from your experiences, there's not too much of a disparity between yeah, not, your generation and the generation you're working with now. Yeah, I mean, from from what I've seen, there's, there's not a lot of difference. I mean, I think society is very different now, isn't it? Like, like you say, mobile phones when I was playing was you know, completely non-existent. <laughs> I mean, Instagram and Facebook, they were non-existent. And now I went to watch England under-21s, was it last year when they played Poland at Ashton Gate? And you've got the team list, and literally next to, next to all these England under-21s is their Instagram page, their Facebook page, their this page, their LinkedIn page. Thinking, <laughs> really? You know, you're here to play Slippy football. footballers, yeah. You know, so you have to accept the game's changed. Um, social media I'm not a massive fan of, but it's part and parcel of society now, and we have to deal with it. But like, like I say, in, in the main, they, they, they're pretty good and get on with it and integrate it quite well. So, at what point did you start getting drip-fed into the first team at Norwich? Um, I was lucky enough to play in, well, I played, played in a testimonial when I was 17. I think it was against Manchester United, actually. It was, and it was Brian Gunn's testimonial, and that was my first sort of game with the, with the first team as such. And I was, Eric Cantona played, and Paul Scholescott played, so I'll drop it, drop it, <laughs> and drop it. Um, I'd sort of been involved, this was when Mike Walker was the manager, so, and I'd been training with the first team for a while, and after that, um, obviously I was still an apprentice then, then I signed as a professional at 18, and then from then I was regularly involved with training squads, squad matches, first team, uh, pre-season tours abroad, going with the first team, um, there was no under 23s in them days, so it was a first team squad, mm-hmm. all professionals pretty much were in it together. Um, and then I made my debut. Uh, oh, blimey. Was I 18 or was I 19? Some time ago. I think I was 18, December, and I was 18. I was just about to turn 19 in January. Uh, I made my debut at Swindon. Um, Bruce Riock was the then manager. He came in as a manager and uh, gave me my debut. And luckily, he, he saw something in me and liked me and put faith in me. And uh, I made quite a few appearances under him, and then, being honest, Bruce Rock left, um, and I was gutted because I knew he liked me and he saw something in me. And I think he identified with the way I played. He was quite a strong, robust footballer, from what I know. <laughs> yeah. I actually never seen him play, but he was a really good man. And um, I, um, being honest, when he left, I worried, and then I got word that Brian Hamilton was going to take over who was his number two and I never had a great feeling with, with Brian I never thought he really trusted me when he left I I thought my writing's on the wall here um, I honestly believe that if Bruce was still there I would have played a lot, lot more but Brian came in, that's football and at the end of the year he, he, he released me so um, that was the end of my days at Norwich So in terms of for a younger player you mentioned obviously the trust that the manager had in you yeah. would you say that's quite an important thing 
I, I think so. I mean, I have it now with, with my players. Uh, you know, obviously at a lower level football, but I have to trust my players. I have to know that, you know, they're going to do things right and not just go through the motions. And you put them on a football pitch and they're going to give you their all. Um, and I think, I think, you know, it comes over a period of time. I worked with Bruce, Bruce Riot for quite a while before he gave, put faith in me and, and trusted me and put me in the first team. And it's, it's a big ask for a manager. I totally understand that, you know, results are so important at that level. Um, and, you know, if, if you put throw someone in and it backfires, it's his job on the line. So they have to really have faith in you and, and trust what you're going to do. But they have to trust their own ability and their own judgment as well. So and I have to trust, trust my judgment when I'm coaching and managing that. So how... Also, an important part of this would be the other team, the first teamers, and that type of stuff. How did you find the integration and then gaining the respect and trust of those guys? Um, again, I think that just happens over a period of time. They, they get to know you in training. They get to see you playing in reserve games. And some of the first team players may play in the foot in the reserves. You know, and some of the senior players like Matt Jackson was a centre half and captain at the time. You and Roberts. You know, I can't thank them enough because they, you know, they've really been positive and help you out and encourage and. There were times when things were going badly, but there'd always be a, someone to speak to if you needed to. They'd always give you a pat on the back. And, uh, and I think that's all important because if things start to go badly in football, they can quickly, quickly go downhill rapidly. And I'm, I've seen it with individuals and I think it's you know vital that that, that rot stops quite quickly. So you know, it might be a comment from a, 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 um, a manager that, that stops it and gets you going back in the right direction again. So every single one of them. I can't think of anyone who wasn't great with me you know I, I had better relationships with senior, some of the senior senior players than I did with others so do you think that having that uh, those senior players in, in quite a from what it sounds like quite supportive of a, them obviously identifying a younger player coming in and you were doing I assume the right things to signal that you were going to work hard and yeah. as a minimum do you think them being supportive created the environment for everyone else to kind of follow that because what I see from the outside looking in sometimes is if you have the people at the top senior ones that at times can be a bit derogatory or maybe not show themselves in the best light mm. the people below that mm. kind of go well if they're able to do it then I'm able to do it just as much or worse and it kind <laughs> yeah. of filters down if you like well there's also the other side of it where you know these these senior players that are actually playing the first team might look at you and go actually you're a threat to my position or, or whatever it may be and uh, I'm sure that happens where they'll try to put you down or destroy your confidence because they don't want you taking that spot the ruthless <laughs> world yeah. and it is it is a team game without a shadow of a doubt but you know you, you, you still have to look after the individual um, and you have to look at it a selfish way in many, uh, a, a fair bit um, because once you leave a football club you're quickly forgotten about because they'll replace you with the next person. Yeah. So uh, it's ruthless. So you do, I hate to say it, but you do have to look after the individual. And if you do it, things right, and you can look yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, I've given my all, and you can't complain. But um, you need to survive as an individual first before you integrate into that team. Um, but, and it, and don't get me wrong, I, <laughs> I got stick from the senior players, but not in a, derogatory way as in to affect my footballing ability it's more of a social thing that sometimes you get stick for whatever it might be in your haircut or the clothes you're wearing or whatever it, whatever it may be 
Um, and it was, you know, it was never, never personal. Yeah, not from, from my experience. Anyway. I think the industry's like that anyway. Naturally, business, you're going to yeah. get a stick and stuff. I remember. Exactly. Yes. Obviously, I didn't. I didn't play any first team games for that. But being reserves, training around yeah. the first team, and being 18s and stuff, yeah, yeah. you're going to get a stick because yeah. it's just the nature of the beast to a certain degree. Yeah, and exactly. The other side of it, which I think it does, academies can obviously hard it, find it hard to prepare people for is if you're playing in front of 20,000 people 30,000 people 60,000 people you're going to get stick you're going to get stick if you're the ones I always feel sorry for uh, um, the subs warming up along the touchline because you know they're going to get some pelters yeah. from crowds and stuff so it is going to make you thicker skinned yeah, I, I, know, I mean particularly in, in this day as your social media I think you know um, it's instant isn't it I mean, I've, I've had stick. Obviously, you, you expect stick from opposition supporters. It's, it's part of the game, you know. I was a, I was a fullback, so you know sometimes I'd go and take a throw, and then some of the abuse you get was pretty horrendous, to be honest. But you you know it's not aimed you at, per, at you personally. It's you because you're a of a collective uh, as a team that are trying to beat the team they're supporting. So I mean, it happens. But I mean, I, I've read things in the past which I wish I hadn't have read about, you know, from your own fans in forums, fans forums, or someone's commented, and, and uh, you know, I've, I've I've read things about myself from my own fans, or fan, or a couple of fans, you know, <laughs> yeah. wherever it may be, and you're thinking, it doesn't do any good, put it that way. Yeah, it doesn't do you any good. And and I was quite when I, you know, I was reading this thing from what bits and pieces from I can't, I can't remember if I was really young but probably when I signed for South End I read a bit and I was so how old was I when I signed for South End 24 and I like to think I was a relatively mature adult at that point who had some skills to deal with that but still not nice still not nice when someone's making a comment about you on a social forum for people to see and, but you deal with it and you get on with it I don't even know who they are yeah uh, I guess that's nice. particularly it's been highlighted more and more with, with players on social media mm. and obviously fans yeah, yeah. giving them stick but then also going the other end of death threats and all that type of stuff which is that's ridiculous. ridiculous but was there a way you developed thick skin for that? Uh, no not really it wasn't I, I don't think it was anything I was never taught anything or you know I didn't attend a course to say yeah this is how you deal with it you're never given any skills like that I just think it's something that's inherent that I had to do whether that's from my, my family or whatever um, I just did just did and you just get on with it and yeah it does upset you for a short period of time you soon forget it um, it's always there though it's always there and it, you know I, I've been honest I can't remember specifics about that stuff that was written and it wasn't a lot. It wasn't, you know, pages and pages. It was, you know, your comment about how you played at the weekend or whatever or in, in general terms of what you like. And, um, you know, if I think about it now, it's still not nice, but I can't do anything Get about it. With it and, uh, and I'm 41 now and I still don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> but you just deal with it, don't you? These things happen. I guess so. that's one of the things as players get older, they do learn the ability that like as a 19 you might have been sitting there going yeah, what have I ever done to this guy like yeah. maybe I do need to overlap more or something like that whereas actually you go yeah. as you get a bit older you go 
It's a random guy doesn't down the pub. He's not gonna. He's not <laughs> no. not, gonna, not gonna know me. He doesn't know what's going on in our team meetings where yeah. the gaffer's told me not to overlap at any point because yeah. you've got. Well, that's the, thing, that's the thing. There's a lot more detail behind it, and they don't know you as an individual. And um, I remember someone once saying to me, he "said You know, when they when you step on a football pitch, all they see is a footballer. They don't see you as a human being. They see you as a footballer product." And they said, uh, "They don't know if you've got family issues. They don't know if your wife's." ill or your girlfriend's just left you or you've had your house burgled or whatever the night before you step on a football pitch and all that's irrelevant which is true but but you're in that industry where you are uh, under the spotlight for 90 minutes every week uh, and they pay their money to watch you play football and it's the nature of the beast you get on with it so obviously you mentioned a minute ago about moving to Southend and stuff how did you find that transition? You said that you kind of left Norwich and trying to look for a new club. How was that process? Well, being for you? honest, when I left Norwich, I actually came to Bristol Rovers first. So I was at Bristol Rovers for two years. So I, I got, I left Norwich at the end of the year, um, and it was tough. I mean, I played, I think, twenty five games in the first team at Norwich at this point, and I was still young. Was I twenty one? Yes, I think I was twenty one, and. Um, so I hadn't played bags of first team football, but I had first team experience and done reasonably well and in the championship um, as it was as it still is. Um, and I suppose you presume well something will come up, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't until it's kind of lost a short. I'd actually agreed to go to Luton purely simply. Uh, it was a link through an old goalkeeper coach who was at Norwich called Malcolm Webster. And he was linked with Luton and he said, uh, I can't even remember the manager at Luton at the time was. It's pretty bad. Um, but anyway, he said, you know, come in for pre-season, we'll have a look and, and go from there. So this was what I, I built up for all through the summer. I think it was about two days before pre-season was, was going to start. And I got a phone call from uh, the chief scout for Bristol Rovers, a guy called Richard Everson. He said, Ian Holloway, why don't you come down here? Bristol Rovers. I said, well, I'm you know, going to do it. He said, no, we, we want you at Rovers. Um, so instead of going to Luton, two days later, I was driving down to Bristol and signing for Rovers. So um, big, big change. Massive culture shock. Um, great set of lads at Rovers. Um, they, they just missed out on the playoffs the year before. They had a really good year, been in the top six all year and missed out on the last day, I think. Um, had some big names. Uh, Jason Roberts was still there, Jamie Curtin was still there, Bobby Zamora was still there. So the front four, those three, front, those three plus, Nathan, plus Nathan Ellington. Okay, yeah. Was like, okay, this I'll is fit all of those in. I know, it's mental, <laughs> crazy. And um, so I saw it and I thought, oh yeah, these boys are going to do, do big things here, going to do really well. And Ollie, I obviously met Ollie on the first day and he was great. You know, he's the most enthusiastic man about football that I've ever met. And um, but within, I think before the season had even started, so within four, six, four to six weeks, Bobby Zamora had left, uh, Jason Roberts had left, Jamie Curtin had left. So Nathan really was the only recognised striker at that time. And signed another lad called Martin Cameron from Scotland, but only just signed, so didn't really know a lot about him. But uh, a lot there was a lot on Nathan's shoulders, and Nathan was nineteen. Um, so it went from, you know, having that strike force to relying on a nineteen-year-old and. Nathan was amazing, what a player, uh, and his future career showed that, but there's a lot on his shoulders. Um, so and that year we actually ended up getting relegated, 
but also a bit of a culture shock with regards to these are the things you take for granted when you're a, big, a reasonably big club like Norwich is the fact that I used to just go in with wash bag and everything's there for you whereas at Bristol Rovers you know you take your, take your training kit home and wash it and this sort of thing so they're just the little bits that I'm a little bit embarrassed by it now but you, you mollycoddled a little bit too much and I had to get used to doing that which is sounds ridiculous but I wasn't used to it and I did it didn't take me long obviously but it's oh I've got to take my own training kit home now but that's cooking for yourself and all that type yeah, of stuff exactly. as well so yeah just a different environment the Norwich had their own training ground Bristol Rovers we were training at the, at the beaches uh, as it was in Alien Brislington completely different environment um, so yeah you just had to get used to the bits and pieces and the Mems a little bit different from Carrow Road um, and, and obviously a big city being in Bristol I mean I actually lived in Bath when I was playing at, at Rovers but so but the environment Bath and Bristol I had to get used to it and I was a long way from family I was a single man at the time but you, you soon get used to it and like I said luckily the Rovers lads were all, all good lads so uh, I like to think I integrated quite well so, so you mentioned the front four there yeah. and who all of them obviously I'm a little bit younger than you but I remember all of them Bobby's more in particular I'm a Spurs fan so for me yeah. uh, I have fond memories okay. of him but all of them from my perspective went on to have really really good careers yeah. and, and did really well is there a common thread between those guys that you look at or any of the other players that you've mentioned that you look at and go actually those top players all have this quality um <laughs> I did. To be honest, I didn't see Bobby, Bobby that much when I was younger because um, he wasn't there for very long. You know, how he, he knew he had a lot of ability, um, but he was still quite a young guy. I can't remember how old Bobby was then. I think he was only about nineteen. Um, no, they're all very different. If I think about it, I mean, you look at Jamie Curtin and Jamie could. I knew Jamie from Norwich because he was at Norwich and then Cypher Rose before me so I knew Jamie from Norwich and he just knew where the net was and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying he'd been non-existent for a lot of the game and then suddenly bang he scored two or three and you're just like wow um, whereas Jason was just all hustle bustle you know powerhouse strong quick was working socks off for 90 minutes so very very different um, Bobby Probably wouldn't know what Bobby was about. Um, he'd work his socks off and knew where the net was. So he's a bit of a blend of the two. You know? not, I'm not saying that Jason didn't know where the net was, but uh, but being honest, they weren't. I didn't get to see them for that long a period of time. Like I say, from me signing to them leaving was you know four to six weeks. I didn't really get to see a lot of them. Um, so I probably know exactly the same amount as you from watching <laughs> on TV. Yeah, I'm picking up their big bucks. <laughs> so. But Nathan, Nathan was Nathan. He came out non-league football. Nathan from London, yeah. uh, very clued up young man, great feet, strong, quick, and he had a. Being honest, because of the non-league aspect, he almost had a little bit of a a bit of a street mentality to it. In the fact that I'm just going to play football, I'm not. I'm not going to get stressed about it, or he didn't appear to be stressed about it. It was like it was just a game of football. Yeah. You're going to play and almost not treated like a, a street game of football because it was more than that but it was he could relax a little bit more and he hadn't had that pressure on him for years and years and years and there was no expectations that he almost just was a free spirit give him the ball let him do it 
And that's what he was about. So I think there's a lot to be said for those type of players. I played with a lad, and he he was at MK Dons and a few oh, other okay. places. I remember us playing a game at Plymouth, and um, he missed a penalty. Right. Okay. And started laughing. Okay. Right. And so, like, obviously, okay. some of the people in the team, I was not overly vocal in terms of hammering people. That was, that's kind of not my bag. Right, but okay. some of them got very annoyed and angry from laughing. Okay. Five minutes later, he's cut inside, yeah. beaten three, and whipped one top bins. Oh, yeah. okay. And it sat with me for quite a few years, kind of going the almost the arrogance of it to laugh at missing the penalty yeah. to then be able to do that yeah but then when i've looked at it subsequently and from coaching stuff i almost think his ability to do that after mm. is because of the freeness of spirit of going i'm not actually that fuss i've missed a penalty it's a penalty yeah it didn't affect him too much he still got on with the rest of the game and did what he did yeah, yeah. it's almost like a type of amnesia i know in yeah. american football they talk about quarterbacks having amnesia forget that they've thrown an interception or yeah. whatever yeah. and yeah. focus on the next thing yeah. which i think almost yeah. his nonchalantness towards it yeah, yeah. was that yeah. and that he would miss a penalty laugh and then five yeah. minutes later do that and you're kind of like yeah 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 not not too much not put too much on emphasis on the outcome of that penalty it just looks the next bit and I mean I'll be honest probably if I was playing in that game I'd probably look at him if he was laughing in my team I'd probably be really upset with him yeah that, and find it quite disrespectful yeah because you know it's I'll, not funny it's not funny <laughs> yeah you know it's not funny but I know that's this is this is the thing. I mean, you look at these players that can do thing, wonderful things with the football, and you're almost like that. You have to treat them differently. You have to treat Messi differently. You have to treat Ronaldo differently because they've got that ability, you know. Um, and people respond to different things, don't they? In different ways. I, I, you would have seen it—the video of Maradona warming up. up. I was just, that was the very thing that just popped into my head. So, as a team member there, yeah. I'd be looking at it going, this ain't right. Yeah. Like, he needs to be doing what we're doing. Yeah. But then, yeah. are you kind of culling Maradona to exactly and, and not I, be the player I, that I he remember is? remember someone asking me exactly the same thing. If your player did this and showed me the video of Maradona, his laces untied, wasn't he? He was just in yeah. tricks and, you know, almost like it was dancing around. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, if you, if you were, no, you come here and do the warm up like the rest of us. But then that might have an adverse effect on what he actually does on the pitch. So marrying the two up is very, very difficult. I prepared for a game as a as a pro, very different from other people. Yeah, you know? I was probably a little bit too. I've been honest when I played. I probably I don't know how to put it into into probably thought about it too much, too much, and it had a, a negative effect because I did think about it too much. I didn't just play, but that was just the way I was. I mean, obviously, Craig Bellamy was the, the, the prime example when we played as kids. He had this freedom, and he, he not say he didn't, he wouldn't have missed the penalty and laughed, put it that way. <laughs> so <laughs> he wouldn't have done that. But he had this freedom, and he had, it was just this belief in his own ability to do things on a football pitch. And he was a young man playing the first team. It was like, I don't care who you are, this is how I do it, and I'm pretty good. And I trust myself and I believe in myself and I'm going to do it. So you talk about the preparation before a game. What would that look like for you? And did that change throughout your career or did it kind of remain consistent? It, it pretty much remained consistent. Um, I was I like to think that I was 
probably the model professional really. Um, but I but that's had a little bit of a negative effect in the fact that I probably thought about it too much all the time. Couldn't switch off from it and it took over my life. Um, so like night before games, would you be yeah. going, oh, I'm playing, might be playing against this guy or this guy, this is what I've got to do. Yeah, and I couldn't sleep and stuff like that. And, you know, the, I probably didn't re- deal with it in the best way. I, I never really signed any long-term contracts, so I was always under pressure to make a career out of it. Am I going to get a new contract? Am I still going to be here next year? Because um, I knew I was never someone who on a football pitch would stand out as such in the fact that you know you watch Messi and these talented players that are going to create and uh, be offensive players they stand out don't they they yeah. catch you right yeah. I was never one of them but I always was one of those that you could put on a football pitch and would do a really good job it's 7 out of 10 is yeah and you'd be able to put me right back left back centre back centre midfield and do a job yeah. um, I was a bit of a jack of all trades master of none as such probably um so I was always fighting for my career, really. Yeah. Fighting to make a career out of it. And being honest, when I left Bristol Rovers, I, I dropped out. I left Bristol Rovers after playing pretty much every game for two years and changing manager. Um, changing manager, left. Couldn't find a club. So I dropped into non-league for a very short period of time. Uh, luckily, only, only a year. I, I've been honest, I missed most of that year because I broke my ribs quite badly. But So you've dropped out and then you're kind of jumping back in. How did you find that transition to kind of dropping out of football then going back in and what was Southend yeah. like in itself? I mean, it's, again, Southend was a very different club, club from Bristol Rovers and, and, um, and Norwich City. But I, I found it not easy, but, you know, the, the professionalism of it, the expectations, I all knew anyway. So it was almost just going back into a, another club. Uh, the environment was obviously different. Um, so it, I struggled to start with. I did going back into it. I hadn't played at that level for over a year. Fitness-wise, you know, I'd been out for a long, long time with my broken ribs, so I struggled with it a little bit. But I'm being honest, after, I can't remember when it was now, but I didn't play a lot in my first year. Um, Steve Wignall was the manager who signed me. I didn't play a lot in my first year. He left, and then Steve Tilson took over. I think it was the beginning of my second year, so I signed the first uh, one year, and then I signed another one year after the first, my first year there. Steve Tilson took over, and I remember I was on the bench, and we played West Ham in the cup. I was on the bench at West Ham, and I remember getting off the coach when we got back to Roots Hall and saying to the gaffer, "I want to go, don't want to be." I wasn't enjoying it. Um, I didn't feel comfortable anything like this and then he said okay well, okay we'll discuss it a little bit further over the next couple of days but if that's how you're feeling I don't want you to go anywhere but that's what you're feeling fair enough and then we I can't remember we played on a Saturday well the team played on a Saturday or Monday I played on a Saturday and lost somewhere and then we trained on a Sunday um, at the training ground and I and I said to the gaffer afterwards I said do you, want, do you want me there or do you want me to stay away or what do you want me to do? And he said, no, you're playing. This is a, a, a Monday game and um, we won and I stayed in the team for the rest of the year. And I stayed in the team for the following year. And we got two promotions on the trot. So from going, I want to leave. And I was really, really unhappy. And people, 
you know, I just didn't enjoy it. I wasn't enjoying it. Um, even not playing football again at that point was an option. But I've had enough of this. I just want to go and be secure in what I do. And, and uh, so from that to literally a week later, playing in a game at Roots Hall, we won the game 2-1. I think it was Macclesfield, I think. And we literally went on a run and, and ended up getting promoted through the playoffs that year. And then the following year, we won League, League One. So to get into the championship. And I played every game for two years. Then when the championship came, um, it became apparent I wasn't going to play in the first game of the championship. And then it all started again. <laughs> so I played two years, worked my socks off to get there, and then it was taken away from me again. So football was like that. It was picks and troughs. And I'll be honest, I'm still bitter about it to this day. You know, I was not really given a chance in the championship uh, when we got there. Um, yeah, but that's something I have to live with until the day I die. I think that's always the, the common thing with clubs that come up to Premiership and managers juggling. Do you stick with what you had, which is what exactly. like Sheffield United, for example, yeah, have done? Obviously, yeah. they had a bit of a yeah. maverick yeah. system from what I can see. Or do you go and do what Fulham did and chuck a load of money at it and hope that actually by bringing in, in inverted commas, better quality players gives you a better chance to cope? Exactly. I mean, you know, I I don't know whether I would have, I'm quite confident I would have coped in it, but I just wasn't given the opportunity. That's what gets to me a little bit. But the the back four that have played in that League One championship winning season, three of the back four changed on that first day of the season. So only one player retained their position and, um, the, the team ended up getting relegated from the championship that year and I'm not saying that we would survive but there was some money thrown around um, Michael Ricketts was a prime example Michael Ricketts had played played for England on a hat full of money uh, came in and didn't want to work hard so came in and it was he didn't I can't remember how long he lasted at that time uh, but didn't last very long at all but he hadn't been through that period of two years where you know we were struggling in League Two. He hadn't been through that process of two years where we'd worked hard, worked our socks off. We'd had to go to Boston United on a Tuesday night and really graft to get a result. And then it, you know, in the Championship, Stoke first game of the season and walks into the team. I imagine as a group as well, those like you said, Boston on a Tuesday night brings you together. Because yeah, you, so. you, you, you know, if you're doing so. a running session for that game and you get through that game and yeah. then you're getting promoted and stuff yeah. as a group, you kind of go, yeah. actually, that's my number nine yeah. or that's my centre half. Or well, that's the thing, I mean, and I think those two years, one of the big plus points of that those two years was just the togetherness, the team spirit we had was phenomenal. I, mean, I, I remember going to Blackpool on New Year's Day and we were one nil down with about ten minutes to go. And, even at one nil down with ten minutes to go, we all pretty much looked at each other and went, "We're going to win this." We just knew we would, and we ended up winning two one. Yeah. It helps when you've got someone like Freddie Eastwood who knows where the nut net is. But we just had a belief that, you know, whatever the state of the game was, we'd do all right. And sure enough, you know, I remember speaking to some fans at Northampton, and we played Northampton. So this was the year before we played Northampton uh, three times that previous year. So. Two, two times in the league, obviously, and then um, two times in the playoff semi-final. I was ch- chatting to them afterwards, and they said, you're the most 
good side, but you're the most rugged, determined, spirited team we've played against. Um, we just ground them down. Over four games, we just ground them down. And that's, I think that's what we did with a lot of teams. And I think that was just uh, what we had as a team, as a, as a collective. And that was broken up the year we got right into the championship. But people like Simon Francis, who obviously is now a captain at Bournemouth, I know he's injured for a long period of time now, he came in, did great. He's obviously gone on to bigger, better things. Yeah. Um, but not all of them worked out. And your recruitment's not all, <laughs> more often than not, your recruitment's not always going to be right. Even no. If you, you might get no. three out of five right, but yeah. how detrimental are those two yeah. that you haven't? Yeah. I just think in, in football, I mean, I think you just have to earn the right to play. The individuals have to earn it. And again, this is a bit of a dilemma with Maradona. Does Maradona have to earn the right to play? Because you, but you know what it's all about. But that that year, people were coming in and didn't, hadn't really earned the right to play in that first game of the season, which you know I don't agree with. But that's that's because I suffered personally from it. <laughs> so, but Michael Ricketts should he have played um, in the first game of the season? If you look at his CV, yes. If you look at what he's done at, during pre-season, no. So, so is there is there a lot that you carry over from your experiences of playing into coaching now? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, probably most of it, which is not always a good thing. Not always a good thing, because I know I've made decisions based on how I would have responded to that as a player and it's not always been the best process as a coach because uh, you know your, your frames of reference from your upbringing um, they affect your decision making now as a coach or a manager and um, and again being honest I've picked teams here at the university that I probably shouldn't have picked but I need results or from a personal ego point of view, I need results. And people have got away with things that shouldn't have got away with it. But, um, but it's tough, you know, when you're, you know, you're thinking, you know, you desperately need a result on a Wednesday. We've got to beat so-and-so on a Wednesday. Uh, I need my best 11. But one of those best 11 or two of those best 11 or three of those best 11 haven't pulled their weight in training or just not turned up or whatever it may be or gone out on the drink when they shouldn't have done. I need them to play so I get me a result you like trade off what do you do so I've made decisions based on well numerous factors really numerous factors uh, not always uh, not always ones that I look back on and go yes I made the right decision there but you have to you have to make them there and then and, and stick with them and you have to live with the consequences of them so, and then yeah. How did you find your transition from playing to coach? What, um, I guess what, what kind of drove that? Obviously, you mentioned that you left South End, hmm. and then what kind of did you play for a few more years after that? No, being honest, I left South End like, when I was I got injured. I got really I, I ruptured, well, I, I longitudinally ruptured my Achilles tendon. Um, so, which is an injury I had while I was at the end of my, my last year at South End, and I played in, I remember playing in reserve, I played, being honest, I felt it pre-season of my last year there, and I kept playing through it, and I was taking tablets just to get through games and that, and I got to a reserve game, we played at Norwich of all places, and I remember 
um, warming up and thinking this is just not right. And then the next day uh, I got through the game and then the next day I couldn't walk up the stairs. And I said, oh, no, I need to get this fixed, whatever it is, I need to get it fixed. And at that point I just thought it was something simple like tendonitis. Anyway, after a long period of being out, it ended up being quite a major surgery. I had to go to Sweden to have surgery on it. And I, when I recovered from that, I hadn't played in 18, uh, 18 months. Yes, 18 months. Um, so I hadn't played it for 18 months. My contract at Southend was up. Luckily, when I was still playing, Gary Waddock, who was the manager at Aldershot, said he wanted me to go down there. And he stayed in touch with me. Oh, he was great. I can't give him enough credit, it was fantastic. And he said, you know, when you're right, come train with us and we'll see how you are. Anyway, that pre-season I went to, to Aldershot. Um, I wasn't fit. I was, um, during that time, being honest, I started struggling with my other Achilles. <laughs> um, and anyway, I, I didn't get a contract there. And then within a, a week later, I was told I partially ruptured my right Achilles. Anyway, after lots of... Uh, serious thinking I was advised that this could be an ongoing process with my Achilles so or both Achilles I, I decided to call it a day and seek pastures new and see what else was out there for me so my first port of call was being honest it took me 18 months to probably get over the fact that I wasn't going to play at that level again oh, really um, and you lose your identity um, started socializing a bit more than I should do drinking a little bit more than I should do um, yeah, all in all, it's probably 18 months it took me to get over the fact that that identity that I forged from the age of 10 to I was 30 when I retired. Uh, so 20 years has, has taken away from me. So anyway, after that 18 months, I decided that I wanted to study. So I went back to university and studied to the undergrad. And at that point, I didn't know how good I was going to do at university because I'd left school at 16, didn't have any A-levels. Um, and while I was there, while I was studying, so I studied at ARU in Cambridge, and while I was there, I coached the Cambridge University team. So um, uh, that was the sort of first little step into coaching. While I was studying, I was doing my coaching badges. Well, then I ended up doing a master's degree. Um, and coaching wasn't Originally, it wasn't sort of my first port of call. It wasn't, you know, my target. It wasn't, I desperately want to be a coach. And if I'm honest, it's probably not something that comes naturally to me. Uh, I'm not, it doesn't come naturally to stand in front of a group of 25 lads and tell them what to do. It's not, it's not, it's not me yeah. as such, but I have, it's part of my role and I, I know that I, I'm developing day in, day out, week in, week out. Uh, and I know it's going to be an awfully long process, but luckily I've got my coaching badges through that process. I've, I've done my some uh, my uh, my undergraduate degree, my master's degree, uh, and that's where I am now. So, um, but the transition was difficult, yeah. But again, it wasn't. It wasn't I, when I finished playing or when I was playing. I was desperately wanting to be a coach. It wasn't like that. It's just something that, being honest, I've fallen into a little bit. Mm. It's interesting to talk about a transition because that's actually what my dissertation was at uni. Okay. Talking about people almost losing their yeah. identity. Yeah. Um, and I've had people that interviewed during that that have said they used to hate Saturdays. Yeah. 
similar story to yours in terms of picked up an injury couldn't play anymore yeah. and he said Saturdays for me are the worst day of the week yeah. he said because I was known as the pers- this person yeah. who is a footballer yeah. and he said and I'm not that anymore I yeah. can't be that because no. of what yeah. what's happened to me yeah. um, he says I hate Saturdays now you see I had, I had the conflict I'll be honest I, I had it as in that's, I can't do that anymore that's not part of my life anymore and that's a massive part gone but I had the other side of me which was like Thank goodness for that. You know, it's been taken out of my hands and I'm not going to be doing that on a Saturday anymore. I don't have that pressure of performing, trying to earn contracts, paying a mortgage, um, fans screaming at you. It wasn't... So I had that conflict of, I wanted it, but I didn't want it. It's really strange, really strange to try and articulate what I mean, but uh, stepping away from it took a massive weight lifted off my shoulders a little bit. So... With those pressures, did you not realise you had them until, but until you had um, finished, if you like, were you or were you constantly aware, aware of them for yeah. your career? Yeah, no, I was aware of them constantly. Uh, yeah, I was yeah constantly for twelve years. Um, and yeah, looking back on it, you know, well, it was just me. It was just my makeup. I put that pressure on myself, and I do now. I do now when I'm doing courses or I'm doing I'm doing a court, uh, an education course at the moment and that pressure that I put on myself isn't healthy but it's just the way I am um, so but when, so when it was taken away from me playing inside and not playing on Saturday I actually really enjoy my Saturdays now I don't coach on a Saturday um, I actually really enjoy it I've got a young family which is slightly different but um, it was a little bit more weight lifted off my shoulders I didn't have to try and go and earn a contract somewhere you know, uh, but then there's the other side of it where you walk into a room and you know you, I used to do it and people would know you're a professional footballer now people go oh you're a professional footballer were you? and I didn't know you used to play professional football so not that they should but you know so you know there's that ego attached to it as well so I guess the other side as well if you've got if you're academic or you work in a bank or something that reputation of you coming up through mm. that society will always kind of be there whereas with the football stuff obviously when you move into coaching which is a slightly different field yeah. you can go down avenues where actually no one has any idea yeah. of your previous background no. or anything no. like that no exactly which again yeah. at a point i guess at some point's healthy at another point you're kind of like yeah that's all that is a learning experience that yeah. you've gone through for a 12-year yeah. professional career and your two years of scholar that actually kind of makes up what you do now and the person you are and the experience yeah. you have then yeah yeah but yeah and, and relationships change relationships change massive, massively you know you, you're around everybody wants to talk to you about your football everyone wants to talk to you about football but it's almost like well, I can speak to you about now I'll be honest my dad used to phone me pretty much every day when I was playing football I was training blah 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 it didn't happen when I finished mm. not, you know I'm not not angry or bitter about it it's just that. My dad loved it. My parents, my my family, my sister as well, my older sister, followed me everywhere. I went to watch pretty much every game that I played in professionally or throughout my whole career. I mean, when I was playing at Bristol Rovers, a home game was a six and a half hour, seven hour round trip. Uh, And, you know, some of those games were on a Tuesday night. They'd have to leave work early and wouldn't get home until two o'clock in the morning, whatever it may be. So, so, because that changes for you, it does change an awful lot for everybody else. 
you know, <laughs> my dad openly admitted, he said to me, what am I going to do on a Saturday afternoon now? <laughs> Tongue in cheek, he said it, but you know, what am I going to do now? Sorry, Dad, you're going to have to go down the local rec and watch great shopping play. You <laughs> still enjoy that, much. Yeah. But yeah. do do you think that some of the pressure you're putting yourself is relative to that, or not? Or do you think it's just you as a makeup? That's what you do, or do you think that because you knew that they were making commitments to watch all the time? Um. Yeah, I don't think I was conscious of that, the, the commitments that I make. I think it was just something that I probably um, presumed, uh, not presumed, it was just something I just accepted, didn't even think about. It was just it's always what there, I did. So, yeah. And they did that from, you know, when I was 10 years of age and started playing 11 side football on a massive pitch. You know? yeah. It was just uh, something that happened. And I, I do look at it now and I think, yeah, that was a big ask, massive ask. And, you know, not just time-wise, but financially as well. It must have been huge. Um, obviously, petrol wasn't quite as expensive as what it is now. Yeah. <laughs> it's all relative. So, but yeah, no, I, I, it wasn't something that I probably was aware of really until I reflected on it after my career had finished. Yeah. And then, obviously, you mentioned you kind of falling into coaching and all that type of stuff. I know a lot of the work that is going on in courses and people it's all around philosophies and philosophy of play and your style or brand or whatever you want to call it what are your thoughts around having philosophies do you have any particular philosophies the way that you want to play or and have you transferred those from experiences or how have you got those Uh, it's funny i I think about it a lot and we look at what we do at the university as a development tool you know and it, it, it isn't really about winning obviously Winning goes, there's a correlation between winning and development. If you're going in the right direction, you're probably going to win football matches. But um, I like I like to think that we coach, um, and obviously the way that we want football to be played, and everybody loves this you know, passing game now, playing through the thirds, you know, not the old Cambridge United style or women and style smashing it forward. However, there has to be a place for it. And when the lads leave here when they leave here they're not always going to play for someone who has the same idea as me they might play for a manager who goes no i don't want you to do that there i want you to do this so we have to make them almost malleable and adaptable to the environments that they end up in because football is very different at different levels isn't it can you play out from the back playing in the southern league or the western premier league possibly possibly not Mm -hmm. um so, you know, I, I do look at the way I coach. I don't have a specific philosophy, I'll be honest. I just do the way I haven't written it down or anything like that. Um, I just have a way of doing things and the way I think it should be done. But we have an acceptance that, like we say, we can play the prettiest football here ever, but when they go and play men's senior football externally, it's a completely different game. And I see it now in the fact that lads come here sometimes who have come from academies. They're taught to pass the ball as a centre back from you know ten yards and play out from the back and all that. And they come here, but they can't defend. They can't do the other stuff that you need to do as a defender. They can't stick their body on the line when it hurts or go and block a shot. Someone's going to smash a ball from twenty yards. They don't get out to it to block it and get hurt by it or stick your head in when it hurts. They don't do that. So it's impossible to cover all the facets you need to 
be a professional footballer and there's no footballer alive that's got every single one of them but you know we, we try and make them adaptable to the environment that they're going to end up in so then in terms in terms of uh, the development stuff do you have like individual plans for lads or is it more of a team-based stuff and then around that you'll try and develop their game understanding and it's more of a, it's more of a team element really uh, obviously individual we do tap chat to individuals on uh, uh, on a regular basis but it's more of a it's uh, more of a team uh, collective really of what we're trying to achieve and the way we play and um, you know we, we never obviously in coaching sessions you you have to work with specific players but we always try to incorporate everybody else because it's still relevant to what they need to do so you can't just focus on them and the others get get neglected um so probably we could get just do a blink on the end of the both look on the collective and the individual um because i say it's a team game but you have to look after the individual first and um, these individuals when they leave here they're going to be out on their own and they're not going to have their teammates that they've been working with for three years to look after them they're going to a different environment who might do things slightly different from what we do there might be a central mid midfielder who's not quite as nice as a central midfielder they've played with before. Uh, so you just have to give them the tools to be able to cope with all the demands that might be put on them. And they won't. They won't because they won't be able to develop everything, but don't give them a good platform to do that. And do you still think players at this age can still develop stuff be it skills so for example yeah. if you had a centre half who's right footed do you think he'd still got the ability to go and practice his left foot and make that a better thing or do you think that there's a scene into when you can develop uh, those skills good question well technical ability uh, I mean that example you've just made I think it'd be very very difficult to get someone to who can't kick their, with their left foot to start kicking with their left foot uh, I think it's too late to, to have that However, I think you can give them an understanding of, you know, say you're a centre half about marking slightly different. Well, actually, the ball's there, so you, maybe you need to go on this side to anticipate that ball into feet or whatever. I think you can you can develop that. But technical ability, um, you can work on it. I don't think you're going to ever improve it massively. Do you think they already have to have a base to be able to yeah. build upon? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Sadly. <laughs> sadly so yeah yeah that's that's my opinion on it. yeah no it's, it's an interesting one because i know uh i watch and listen to a lot of sports out in america and they do a lot of their players will go and practice stuff mm -hmm. and i look at the top end and I, i'm always curious to see whether it's because they already have a very good skill set yeah, yeah, yeah. which allows them to kind of work on other stuff or whether it's yeah. the hours they put into practicing that or yeah i think they have to have a very good skill set to start with to be honest um, if you haven't got that sort of foundation, I really struggle with it. Struggle a bit. Yeah. Uh, I guess on skill acquisition, mm. we had a brief conversation yeah, about it, okay. but I asked you to hold it. Okay. You mentioned that you were doing um, jiu-jitsu now. Oh yes, yes. yes. So Probably I'm, I'm a real. Again, I like all different sports, and okay. I've been following um, UFC mixed martial arts okay. a lot yeah. more. Well, UFC was well, mixed martial arts was what I. 
like to start with, and then it's developed into. I still like mission martial arts, but I start to do jujitsu. I didn't want to get punched in the face. I'll be honest. That's part of the reason why I want to go down there because because of not getting hit in the sparring and stuff. So I'd be interested in terms of being able to roll with people and that type of stuff. How have you found the development of skills? For that within you, uh, like for you, you've got going into a relatively new sport and whatnot. And I, I like to think I had a, a good foundation in the fact that I did judo as a kid. So although very different, I still it was a grappling art to yeah. a certain extent. Um, so I did have a, a brief background. My interest in MMA um, and the grappling side of MMA, um, I think because of my interest in it, I'd already had a, a, a mental foundation of how these things work and how these operate. And even the biomechanics, so I did my master's degree in biomechanics, so even the biomechanical aspects of it, I know very different, but I still had a, an understanding. So it was difficult. The biggest thing for, for me with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was just turning up, just going to your first class and going, this is completely um, unknown to me. I've never done this before in my life. These guys are trying to choke me and strangle me. Um, <laughs> what's it going to be like? And luckily, I had a friend who actually fought in the UFC. Um, and uh, this was when I was living in Cambridge. I did my first class um, and quickly fell in love with it. And it's tough to start with because you need the fundamental aspects of it of how to move, how to move your hips. Um, and then, obviously, once you've got those fundamentals, then you can start to develop, you know various attacking options this that and the other and um, luckily it snowballed from there and you have to start somewhere um, but it's a test I found it a real test mentally and I still do every jiu-jitsu I have this conversation with my wife all the time every jiu-jitsu session I go to it's a struggle because it's a struggle getting there because of that mental challenge of 1v1 and it's not always 1v1 fighting you're, you're practicing your drilling you're rolling casually or whatever and, um, but it's still just you you know there's no hiding place so I still have this element of am I going to be good enough at this but then when I get there I absolutely love it and the feeling afterwards is the best feeling in the world my wife used to before I was married to her I, we lived in separate towns actually we weren't living together and when she'd phone me in the evening sometimes and she'd go you've just done jiu-jitsu haven't you and I'm like yeah how do you know that and she just knew from the tone of my voice just because of what it brought to me. And obviously I've got a love of it now. And I have, it's, it's you know, uh, it's an infectious thing. Um, but it's very, very different from being in a football environment. Different people as well. Mm. You know, I think it's almost this vehicle for, I think Joe Rogan said, it's a martial arts for vehicles for himself a better individual or something, something along those lines. And I believe it, it is, it makes you more humble. Much more humble, well, especially you know, when someone's you someone's choking you and you've got to tap. Well, right, you've got to tap. You beat me. Yeah, but so I guess at the start as well, when when if you're rolling or drilling with people yeah. that are a lot better than you, yeah. they're going to ca- constantly yeah. choke you out or constantly catch you and stuff, and you just got to kind of go. Yeah. Now I'm going to grind and yeah. work through this. And there's this popular saying in jiu-jitsu: you either win or learn. And and I think you're always going to get choked, you're always going to get strangled, you're always going to get uh, arm barred or knee barred or toe barred or whatever. And someone said to me, well, someone said to me before, a, a black belt is just a white belt that's been doing it a lot longer. Mm-hmm. So my progression of where I am now, I'm 
I'm in the middle now, so I've just got my purple belt, which I'm really pleased with, but I know I've got a huge amount to do to get before I the rest of my black belt. So even though I've been, you know, I'm sort of halfway through the belts, I still have that challenge of overcoming this mental thing. And it's, it is an inherent thing individually. And being honest, I, I don't really want to compete in it. And I have this thing with my instructor who wants me to compete. I'm very reluctant to compete because I spent a large period of my life competing in football and preparing for it and it took over my life. So if, I, if I'm if i going to compete in Jiu-Jitsu, I know it will take over. I know I won't be able to sleep and I'll be thinking about it for weeks beforehand. I'm not sure I want to do that. So I, I love doing it as a hobby and having that uh, physical... And it is, I think some of it is the physical contact because when I was playing football, I liked the physical contact. I liked the tackling. I liked the uh, real um, heading aspect and really being to compete with someone at close quarters. And Jiu-Jitsu allows you to do that. Slightly different, because like I say, someone's trying to render you unconscious. <laughs> but I love it, I love it. Yeah. And how have you found the transition from, obviously football, massively a team sport, can rely on other people, they can, as you put it earlier, they can drag you up or drag you down. Yeah, yeah. How have you found it being just you? Because it ultimately, in although you're learning skills and stuff, mm. if you get caught in an arm bar, that's because you can't have put me. your arm somewhere you shouldn't yeah. have done. You and can't blame anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, like, like I said, I think it makes you more humble because you're going to get beaten. You know, I, I rolled with a friend of mine at the, uh, on Monday night who, you know, we're quite even. He's, he's got his purple belt too. We're essential standard. He's, a, he's younger than me and stronger than me and more explosive than me. We've got very different games. But usually we're quite even, or I get the better of him for a large period, and then he gets the better of me on Monday. I was hopeless, and he got the better of me quite regularly on Monday. And I think it's what I, you know, a few years ago I've been spewing over that. I'd be like, Hang on, no, that can't happen. He's beat me so many times, but now I'm like, well, I've got to accept it. It's just one of the things. It's my fault. I learn from it. I won't get caught in that footlock again, or whatever it may be. Yeah. So. Um, and they'll, you'll, you go through peaks and troughs anyway so uh, next time we roll I may destroy it you know <laughs> uh, but I think it just adds lots of other facets I mean from an individual sports point of view it certainly builds confidence um, self-defense aspects and all that sort of thing so um, yeah it's uh, you can't rely on anywhere else there's no hiding place like I say it's just you and that other individual um and the majority of individuals that you do roll with, whether it's in a real competitive uh, sparring session or just a practice session, are usually pretty good people. And if you've done something obvious and you're obviously wrong and they're higher belt than you, they'll help you. They don't do that because otherwise yeah. this will do happen. that, I'm going to do this. Yeah. yeah. And there's always usually a reaction to, well, you do that, I'm going to do this. So, and the, the higher belt's obviously the brown loads of blue belts help you you know loads of purple belts will help you brown belts and black belts they they want you to learn you know it's quite it's quite a different environment you know it's not a very football can be very uh, all about me this is about me uh, whereas jiu-jitsu is very very different although it's about the individual it's almost the collective focusing on an individual to help them do you think there's any way to get that crossover because I imagine if you had a team that had mm. that kind of environment where they're helping each other out with 
tips and stuff, you'd yeah. be in quite a good place as a group. Yeah, definitely. If there's a, if there's a tool that we could use to do that, um, just I think that would be a good thing. Yeah. I've actually mentioned doing jujitsu to the group just to see what their response is, just to take them in the dojo here and say, let's do some jujitsu. Bad feedback. <laughs> <laughs> Put it this way: I gave them the option a little while ago of jujitsu or trampolining. They wanted to do trampolining, or the small group I asked to trampolining. Maybe it's because they're just more. It's something they've done before. They've never ever done jujitsu before. Um, I don't know. I'll revisit it because, yeah, like like I said earlier, other sports they can give you different tools to to deal with uh, situations that you you have to deal with in, in later life. So. I think a lot of the time people like familiarity, don't they? And yeah. having that, like this for me, why I started this was a New Year's resolution with me and my wife. Yeah. We wanted to try something new. Yeah. So I was yeah. enjoying listening to them, so decided to do this. Yeah. She did a stand up comedy course and went on stage. Oh, okay. Okay. And okay. both of us, like, I remember the first time before I did a recording, I was nervous because yeah. I was like, what well, if you say something yeah. stupid, something new? But actually, as a person, it's help me because I feel a little bit more confident because actually you can try something new I'm going to make mistakes I'm doing it but that's fine yeah. I'd imagine that would be yeah. the same when you first started jiu-jitsu or if those lads are going there they don't want to do it because I'm familiar but they probably one or two of them go actually I love that yeah. I'm going to yeah. do that again well there are a couple of lads that I've worked with in the past that actually have done it and really enjoyed it Yeah, and I think jiu-jitsu is one of those things that if you do it it's infectious and you stick with it although there is a large dropout rate at a certain belt because it is quite a long process to be uh, I think black belt, the average is you know, black belt is 10 to 12 years or something so it is a long period of time whereas the other martial arts are slightly graded slightly differently mm-hmm. um, so I'm at the belt where they say it's very well you, you, you're getting towards that well the, they're not a million miles away now when you, when you start as a white belt you almost go oh, I don't do it I don't know anything this is ridiculous I don't know how to do this I don't know how to do that then your blue belt you, you start to nail down basic fundamental aspects of it and then purple belt is where they say that you start to find your own game okay, this is good for my body shape and type what I'm good at and you start to nail your own game and then brown belts and black belts are just ridiculously good yeah. <laughs> you know so but even within you know the purple belt system is we're all different all different all got different games different styles different things we like things we don't don't like yeah I'd like, I'd like to the, the danger I have of, of with, with regards to the, the footballers and I've mentioned to them about doing jiu-jitsu in the past to them I mean very flippantly you know, loosely is I don't want to do it just because it's an interest of mine yeah you know almost it has to add value um, and I think it will add value to some, but won't add value to others. So, do I still do it? Um, well, I, I, I mean, I heard conversations a few years ago that said the England rugby team were doing judo yeah, to do. help with um, placement of body and yeah, be able to manipulate, and all that sort of stuff, which yeah. I guess yeah. it's a real clear correlation for those yeah. guys there to do that. Yeah. I guess from the footballer side, they're probably looking and going, well, "Where's why, the correlation in this?" Exactly. exactly. Um, which. Again, tucking them up a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say that in my. I I think what I'm realizing as I get a little bit older, probably to when I was younger, is actually sometimes just putting yourself completely in a different comfort zone, even if it's not that related, 
is a massive positive to you? Yeah, it's just been out of your comfort zone. Yeah, no meaningful. Someone, I did my A license and Jeff Pike put on the board and he pointed, when I walked in one morning and he pointed out, he goes, there you go. And I looked at it and he said, no meaningful learning comes about unless you take yourself out of your comfort zone. And he put it on the wall just for me. Yeah. <laughs> in front of 24 others, I was thinking, okay. Thanks, sir. Uh, but I think, I think I, uh, I came across, and this is another thing that was massively evident when my when I did my A license and I viewed, you know, you get your videos. My perception of myself is so, so different than others' perceptions of me and what they see. I was watching the session that I did and I felt one way, that feeling of conducting a session and I felt this and felt that. And then I watched it back diff um, afterwards and I was like, that's not what I felt. Cannot believe that's a completely different person doing that than the one I was, that was there. It, just like things like, I remember being really nervous, rushing my speech and uh, rushing things and doing things really fast. I watched it on the video and I'm, you know, so slow and laboured. Thought, you know, I should have had the dog with me. <laughs> you know, it's so casual and there wasn't enough urgency. Yeah. urgency in it. So, and that was a massive, massive highlight for me. Not everybody sees the same person as what you see. Yeah. But, but yeah, so lots of people will probably think, oh, he does jujitsu, so it's going to be this really... Uh, aggressive, confident individual. But that's really not quite not me. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah. So no, I, I again. I've just done my A license, and yeah. um, the interesting one for me was the psychological corner. Mm. Getting your um, can't remember the name of it now, but get your profile back. Okay. Right, okay. Um, because for me, and the way that I feel, obviously, I go around and talk to people mm. and around the uni around here quite yeah. quite friendly and chatty yeah, yeah. but what it highlighted in the plan and subsequently when I thought about it is correct is people that I know and trust yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'll say hello to you quite a lot because we've got a fairly decent rapport yeah, yeah, yeah. and I get on really well with you yeah, yeah. what I'd find really nerve-wracking is if I didn't know you first time I met you I'd be there going what am I going to say to him to think rather than just going up and saying hello realise you're another human being yeah. and actually we both like football so as a start Common point interest. I know we're alright <laughs> yeah. but yeah. for me that was real interesting mm. and again it's the perception of myself and perception of what others yeah. others see and I saw myself change over that course yeah. in terms of initially I kind of sat back and was just listening to what everyone was saying yeah. And was trying to take in the room a little bit towards the end i felt like i was more confident oh, having dialogue with different people and disagreements on yeah. thoughts or strategies and stuff like that yeah, yeah. um so for me i felt that was a real good development process mm. and kind of just understanding myself a little bit more which yes yeah, i think to be we all need to be very self-aware and I, i'm very similar to you and i still am you know my own license I'm, on, I'm someone who sits back and listens and takes it all on board. I'm not necessarily all someone that contributes too much because it's almost, you know, when you speak, you're just saying, well, this is what I know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I'm one of those that listen, sit and listen and study and think. doesn't mean, to, you know, it may appear that I'm not taking part in the session, but I actually am, but just not. Your way. As such, it's just doing it my way. Yeah. Um, and I probably started to contribute a little bit more because I'm, I'm aware of it and I'm starting to learn a bit more and become more knowledgeable and think actually I can add value here not necessarily the same as what other people will contribute so you know we all have our own experiences and our own socio-historic processes and we 
all different, all different. And you know, you'll say something in the room, and five people might identify with it. Five people might say, "What a load of rubbish that was," and then five people go, "Yeah, actually, I can really use that." We're not all the same, are we? <laughs> no, no, <it's> <laughs> but. But yeah, it, it, that that perception of individuals. I, I have, a, we've all got it. You know, I've got perception of people who walk around this building every day. Not necessarily the right one, or what they really are. But yeah, that's what I see. And what you take in and your experiences yeah. allow you to form those opinions yeah, exactly. and whatnot. Exactly. So yeah, I guess we'll have I, a role sometime. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. <laughs> well, I've never done it, but it's one of those well, things that go. I'd I'd love to do. I would really love to do is. Um, yeah. Obviously, at the moment, I work evenings a lot of the time, which isn't a great, no. great ideal. But I think if there's ever a point where I didn't, I think I'd probably go and spend the night a week and actually. I'm the dojo here, mate. No, I don't mind. Yeah, give it a go. I sometimes join in with the judo guys, so they're, they're yeah. probably me. But there we go. Well, I'm hoping at some point to be able to speak to obviously different people around this place. Yeah. It might be that they go, oh, okay, you've mentioned this, so yeah, that'll go and do it. Yeah. But no, it'd be good. Yeah, I get good to take me out of my comfort zone. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Try something. Try something new. Yeah. Um, I guess this is kind of the last question I've been asking yeah. everyone this right, okay. um, so it'd be interesting to see what your answer is uh, which is who's the best player or coach or whoever you've played with or against and why best player I've played with um, I probably have to say best player I've played with is probably Craig Bellamy um, he just had that natural ability, ruthlessness, desire, um, belief. And I mean, when he, I remember obviously a lot of that is, obviously I played with him at a young age and now he's played at some of the biggest clubs in the country. And I mean, when he was at Man City and he had a phenomenal year at Man City and how he didn't win player of the year is beyond me. Uh, you know, PFA player of the year is beyond yeah. me, I, I think. He's probably face didn't fit the profile, but um, I just thought it was phenomenal. So, yeah, um, probably probably Craig, yeah. A very good player. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to play with some other very good players in the past, but Craig's probably the, the best of all. Yeah. Best player I've played against. Uh, I mean, again, this is a very fleeting <laughs> name drop. Eric Cantona was and Paul Scholes in that testimonial game. Um, Paul Scholes for me was you know, one of the most gifted players this these islands have ever produced. Technically, couldn't tackle, um, but a lot of the time he didn't need to because he was so good with the ball. He never always had it instead of trying to get it back. So, but yeah, just this this awareness of what was around him, this technical ability, and, and, and yeah, I think Paul Scholes. You know, I don't really have to say too much about him. Um, there are some lower league players that I've been absolutely rinsed by, <laughs> you know, so that um, you've never heard of. But I remember playing against Darren Bent one, and it's Darren Bent once, and he was the quickest thing I've ever seen. Um, yeah. Um, and you said, you said coach? Yeah, if there's any coaches that you've had particularly positive experiences with. Yeah, I mean, I had a coach at Norwich City who was, a, um, who was the reserve team manager at the time, a guy called Steve Foley. Who's actually working at? Is he still working at Ipswich? I think he's still working at Ipswich now. But he was just one. I mean, I was a young, young pro when I worked with him. And he was just really, really good with us all. Uh, his coaching sessions were brilliant. They were engaging. They were the way we wanted to play. 
but he was also very good on an individual le- level. He really had, you could tell just he was passionate about what he did and he just wanted the best for you as an individual. So um, as a coach, Steve was, Steve was definitely, definitely up there. Um, managers, Ian Holloway was infectious. Bruce Riot was, if, if you could probably mould Ian Holloway with Bruce Riot, probably a, a really, really taggy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, so. Um, Ollie was a little bit too much at times, um, but you know you couldn't you couldn't help but be absorbed by his infectious nature and his love for the game and um, want to do well for him. Uh, Bruce was obviously I I always talk about Bruce because he gave me my debut in league football, so um, the best manager ever. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, Jay. Right. I appreciate you taking you. quite a lot of time out of your day no, for this. Mate. And uh, there's a lot of waffle there. <laughs> no, no, no. That's great. I really appreciate it. And uh, obviously, I'll see you around. No problem. Cheers. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.